Happy day after Monday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Uh, Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Thank you for joining me on this tremendous uh, Tuesday afternoon. Uh, you know, we're back almost into our regular work routine. Uh, Uncle Jimmy, as you guys know, uh, was on the show yesterday from home uh, during the approval rating segment on Friday. Obviously, he came in studio and he's almost back to 100%. I would think next week he'll be back in studio uh, with us. And so uh, things here at Fearless, we're soldiering on. We're moving on. We're moving ahead. We're pushing the ball forward. And I'm so glad you have chosen to join us and join uh, the Fearless Army. Uh, the good news continues uh, because I have a great discussion uh, for us today. And I think I have a new soldier that uh, wants to join the Fearless Army. He, he's, he's been on the show before but he was surrounded by other you know, soldiers. He wasn't here as a solo act. He wasn't here seeking induction into the Fearless Army, uh, but now he is. And uh, I'm excited about, I mean, because we've just been adding soldiers to this Fearless Army, and each one seems better than the last recruit. Uh, Rashad McCants has you know, come onto the show and done an outstanding job giving us an athletic, a fearless athletic uh, point of view. It, it's rare to find a professional athlete or a performer professional athlete who's willing to speak the unvarnished truth about what's going on in society, what's going on in the sports world, what's going on with athletes, and do it in a fearless way where he's not concerned about, oh man, am I gonna get invited to this party or that party? Uh, what's gonna happen when I see this guy or that guy? Uh, will, will I still be in what Kwame Brown calls the go along, get along game? Rashad McCants is playing that role for us uh, here on this show, and it, it's, it's been tremendous. And so uh, he was our latest uh, recruit into the Fearless Army. Today, we're going to, uh, and again, love the role that Rashad plays as the former athlete. We have a female voice in Shamika, Michelle. Uh, obviously, we've got Delano, uh, the smartest man on the show, who you know has a great family. And so now we're, we're looking for, I think, someone else in that like lane that Delano's in, in terms of out trying to create God's kingdom right here on earth. And, and this guy calls himself Chocolate Knox. <laughs> He's the black John Knox of modern America. Uh, I believe he's going to be an awesome addition to our show. Dave Shannon's been on here before. He'll be back today after I start a little uh, brush fire or fire about a, a, a topic that's kind of in the news cycle right now. Today's a big day in, in Virginia. There, there's a race for the governor's office, and my fire starter will relate to that. I'm going to tell you about that in a second. But obviously our, our home run hitter, Steve Kim, is going to come on at the back end of the show. Our cleanup hitter, uh, the Korean Cosell, Delano, 
will be here on the show as well. Delano's written a terrific column today about uh, the gentrification of the black mind and how white liberals and their collaborators, Juan Williams and uh, Colin Kaepernick and uh, the overweight professor, Brittany Cooper, uh, heavy, I think they call her Heavy C. Uh, uh, she, anyway, he's written a column about her and how they're collaborating with white liberals to gentrify black minds. Uh, we'll get into that uh, shortly, but I want to start today uh, talking about what's going on in the state of Virginia and, and, and how what Juan Williams said, the political pundit, you guys know Juan Williams, he works for Fox News, he's been a, he used to write for the Washington Post, he's been on cable news networks forever. Uh, Juan Williams wrote a column for The Hill that was titled, uh, Juan Williams, colon, parents' rights is code for white race politics. And so he writes this piece, and I want to read the opening excerpt. He analogizes what's going on in Virginia today and the uh, race between, I think it's Glenn Youngkin and, and Terry McAuliffe. Uh, Youngkin is the uh, Republican upcomer, and McAuliffe is the Democrat incumbent, I believe. And Juan Williams uh, analogizes this to the 2017 thing in Charlotte, I'll just read it there. After white supremacists spilled blood in defense of keeping up Confederate statues in 2017, the GOP candidate for governor of Virginia, Ed Gillespie, said the monument should stay up as a matter of heritage and history. His TV advertising featured threatening images of Latino gangs labeled illegal immigrants involved in murder and rape the racially loaded culture wars campaign straight from then President Trump's playbook gave Gillespie a push, but ultimately he lost the race to Democrat Ralph Northam. Uh, now Virginia Republicans are back with a new improved culture wars campaign for 2021. The closing argument is once again full of racial division, but this time it is dressed up as a defense of little children. The rallying cry is parents' rights. It's a campaign to stop classroom discussion of Black Lives Matter's protest or slavery because it could upset some children, especially white children, who might feel guilt. And this time, the Trump imitating Republicans think they have struck political gold. So what we've been witnessing over the past few months as parents get involved with school boards and push back against this push of critical race theory into school systems is being framed as parental rights because parents do have the right to say what their kids are taught in school. Parents are the final arbiters. They have the responsibility of educating, raising, discipling their kids. The public school system, it, they're not, they don't have final say-so. The government does not have final say-so. Parents do. Juan Williams is arguing that parents' rights 
is code word for white people's rights. That, that's basically what he's saying. And what he's really saying is that white people are the only people concerned with parenting their kids. Everybody else hands their kids off to the government and says, good luck, I'll see you at 3 or 4 p.m. And whatever happens between drop off at 8 a.m. and pick up at 3 p.m. is none of the parents' business. He's saying that white parents are overstepping and they actually want some control over what happens with their kids from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. and everybody else doesn't. What he's saying is that black people, I want to translate, if he really wanted to put a headline on his piece that was accurate of his, and reflective of his thoughts, what he's saying is, y'all know black people don't care about their kids. The only people at these school board meetings are white parents, and they want to influence what's taught at public schools. Black parents want no parts of this. They just want to hand their kids off. It's like a daycare system. You just hand your kids off, hope for the best, and come pick them up at the end of the day. And this is why I keep arguing that buying into this leftist, Marxist, liberal point of view, what you're buying into is white supremacy. They are the racists. And the peoples whose minds they're in control of are people like Juan Williams, who passes himself off as a black man with a Hispanic name. That's how Juan Williams self-describes. And so I, I want to be careful here because if you don't listen carefully, if you don't listen accurately, you will think I have some sort of problem with mixed race people or light-skinned people or uh, people with mixed racial identity. I don't. I have no problem with them. I have no problem with interracial dating, none of it. What I do have a problem with are people who fraudulently present themselves so that they can pitch or sell a poisonous message to black people. That's my problem with Colin Kaepernick. He's selling black kids poison He's dressing it up in this black packaging and selling it to black people. It's like, this is really good for you. Colin Kaepernick is Eve in the garden, offering black people fruit from the poisonous tree. Juan Williams, the exact same thing. Juan Williams is an immigrant from Panama. He and his family, immigrated from Panama uh, when Juan Williams was four years old. He grew up in a Spanish-speaking home. He did not, he's not a homeboy from around the way. 
He's a homeboy from the barrio who got in at the Washington Post and built a media career posing as black. And that's why he calls himself a black guy with a Hispanic name. No, he's a Hispanic guy with a Hispanic name who grew up in a home where everybody spoke Spanish. Those are the facts. And he's on board with all this political nonsense and BS because that who is, that's who's elevated his career. Without the Democratic Party and their support and the support of liberals and leftists, Juan Williams would be nothing. He wouldn't be on TV. But they gave him a job of crafting arguments that portray any idea that disagrees with the Democratic Party as racist. And so, and you, people will look, look at me, look at me working with the Blaze, look at me on Fox News, <laughs> well, Jason, your job is to craft arguments that support conservatives or right-wing people. The difference is, if you judge my entire body of work, what I've said throughout my entire career, I just go wherever I think the truth is leading me. I've ripped everybody from Sarah Palin to Bill O'Reilly to Barack Obama. It doesn't matter. And if at some point I feel like people on the conservative side are telling lies so repulsive and are lying to black people in particular, and I, I, I gotta admit, as a black person, I'm concerned about black people. The most lies being told to black people are being told by people on the left. Because Juan Williams and his messaging on what's going on in Virginia in that political race and what's going on with parents, what the left is telling black people is, your kids belong to the government. You're not in control. And in every right-thinking, rational black person should agree and understand, you're not smart enough to raise your kids. You're not smart enough and responsible enough to decide what your kids are thought, what your kids are taught. White people, on the other hand, they have parental rights. And they are smart enough and responsible enough to decide what is taught to their kids. But we want to stop them. We want them to become just like you. Someone who hands their kids off. And if we decide to teach their fourth grader about masturbation, transgender issues, uh, homosexuality, if we decide to teach them that, you shut your mouth and don't say a word. It's our job. That's what Juan Williams is co-signing. That's the mentality that he wants you as black people to embrace. Hand your kids off to the government. Don't say a word. The government knows better than you.
I completely reject that argument. Fortunately or unfortunately, I'm not a parent. I'm making this argument to the parents that I know, white or black. You must seize control of your kids. For 20, it's a 24 hour a day job and assignment. You do not hand them off to anybody and, and say, well, whatever you teach them is fine. Do you do that to a babysitter? Why the hell would you do it to a school just because the government says so? Juan Williams thinks virtually nothing of black people. Nothing. He thinks we're the lowest form of humanity. That's why he would write and craft an argument that parents standing up and saying, no, we want to decide what our kids are taught. He considers that white supremacy, not parental supremacy. It's white supremacy because only white people think that they should be the ultimate authority on what their kids are taught. Everybody else or cause again, we, you know, Asian, we know he ain't talking about them. We know he ain't talking about these tiger moms out here that are totally in control of their kids and what they're taught. He's talking about us black people. He ain't one of us. He pretends to be, and you go, I, I look deep yesterday and today, deep all off into Juan, who he married, the whole nine yards. And when you go look at it, everything about Juan is distancing himself from black people while pretending to be closer to them. His messaging here is one of the most repulsive things I've ever heard come out of one of these leftist mouths, and they generally say a lot of things I completely disagree with. But this whole notion that parents say, and, 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 and so let, let's get to it because he's like, well, critical race theory is just trying to teach about racism and trying to teach the real history of America. And so if a white parent is saying, hold up, or any parent is saying, hold up, man, I live here in America. I don't want my kids taught that America is evil and irredeemably racist. I don't want my kids taught that white people have a certain privilege in this country that other people don't have. I don't blame them for saying, hey man, I sent my kid here to be taught how to read, write, and do arithmetic. Telling them how to view the world is my job. You teach them that two plus two is four. You teach them where to put a comma, a semicolon, an exclamation point, a question mark at the beginning, middle, or end of a sentence. You teach them the words in the Declaration of Independence. 
I will teach them what to think about the Declaration of Independence. I will teach them what to believe about America and its history, not you. You're a crazy person. You're not me. You're not responsible for this child. I'm not going to let you poison their mind and, and create in them a guilty conscience or an inferiority complex. I don't blame any parent for standing up against that. And so Juan Williams's argument is, and this is what concerns me the most. His argument is, look at the stats. Look at 75% of black kids grow up in uh, unwed marriage situations. Fathers uninvolved, grandparents, aunties raising their kids. They're not parents. And so any parent that's at a school board meeting arguing that's a white person, that's a, that's a white person's privilege or white person's politics, you don't see black parents at these meetings, at these school boards, they're uninvolved. That's his argument. Juan Williams should be using his platform and standing up and telling black people, you better get it together and take your ass to these school board meetings and voice your opinion and tell those teachers and uh, assistant principals and principals what their actual job is. It's not to program children into a worldview that denigrates and tears down this country. I don't, we have to come out of this box of looking at everything through a racial lens and start looking at things through Am I a Christian? Am I a parent? What are my responsibilities? And so if you're a black parent, listen to this. And you have kids, you're a parent. That's what you, what should parents do? Not what should black parents do. Parents should all be doing the same thing. Fighting for control of their kids, not handing them over to the government and a public school system that's failing and is radicalizing young people and driving division in this country. So, and again, part of the reason why we've crafted this show the way that we have is I recognize I'm not a parent, but I wanna talk to parents and I wanna reach them because there's a game being played on parents, but it's being played most acutely on black parents. And that's why I'm glad Dave Shannon is joining this show as a regular contributor, because he's a parent, a parent of seven. He and his wife have seven kids. He's a lot like Delano, but has a whole different, you know, take. He lives in another part of the country in Idaho. But I, I wanna give a platform to actual black parents and let them give their take on the things that we're hearing from these elevated uh, media figures 
who, who are intentionally placed in positions to distract and mislead the American public down a road of divis divisiveness. And in particularly, they're there to mislead black parents and black people. So uh, Dave Shannon, I wanna welcome you uh, to the show. Uh, Dave is the, again, the father of seven, lives in Idaho with he and his, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm sorry I have to say it, but I just want everybody to know, he and his black wife uh, in Idaho <laughs> with their seven kids. And so I wanna know how this Juan Williams stuff sounds to you, Dave. Well, first, man, I just wanna say, um, I feel like I just joined the Avengers. Man, you talking about the lineup is amazing, brother. I feel like I'm Ant-Man in, uh, what was it, in the Avengers when he comes in. He's doped up. And he's like, oh, my goodness, I'm a part of the Avengers. That's how I feel right now. So it's an honor to be here, bro. Um, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about, first of all, I'm a little mad at you. Why, why did you destroy so many of my brain cells having to read this article? I, I was looking for a logical <laughs> strain somewhere in here that I could follow because the first thing I do when I read an article from someone, I want to understand their point. I want to understand what they're trying to say so that I don't misrepresent them. But there wasn't a logical uh, syllogism anywhere in here to, to explain his point. Actually, the beginning of your, your monologue, the fire that you just started, um, was far more kind and logical than what he actually made in the article. Because what he's doing in here, make no mistake about it, this is the same thing that all leftists do, and, and it's it's a broken record, and I hate to go over it again, but what he's doing here is he's he's doing the very thing that he's criticizing the, the right of doing, and, and he's dog-whistling. He says that um, parental rights is dog-whistle for um, white supremacy, but what he's doing here is trying to make sure that McAuliffe— is winning Virginia. And he's dog whistling through the whole article to try and do that. And the way that he's doing that is, look, this is, right now Virginia is up for, for grabs. And the left are concerned. They started their two-minute leftist drill with Kamala Harris oh, about a week and a half ago that decided to make a video to go to black churches and to get them to vote for McAuliffe. I didn't, I didn't know you could drop a video in the middle of a church service that was designed for the Lord's time to hear God's word. And then all of a sudden you get a false God, Kamala Harris coming in to tell you who to vote for. Shame on you. Shouldn't be doing that. This is God's church is not an ass or an elephant. It is a house of prayer. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus would flip tables over for. Anyway, she started their two minute drill to get people to vote for McAuliffe. And she's doing that because they've lost the black vote. They, they are not getting black people excited about them, and they're not getting particularly black women, and they're not getting suburban moms. There's something that's really interesting about this, Jason. Um, it's always interesting to me that the story that is being told constantly is the story of the enemy attacking our women. You go back to Genesis. This is the age-old story. They want our women. And so the, what they're doing is going right for the women in this. Um, and, and, and Juan is saying, listen, people, black folks, remember, this is the article that was written on The Root. If you don't get engaged, white supremacy, the thing that we're afraid of, they're going to elect this other guy, and he's going to put you back in chains. You will be enslaved again, a white supremacy rule, and that whole Charlotte thing will repeat itself. So he is doing the very exact thing that he's blaming the right of doing and caring about their children. And um, 
I would like to be able to chase down these arguments. I think it is very important what he's saying about um, parental rights uh, being considered white supremacy. That is extremely important. But that's a secondary issue in, in the sense that what he's trying to do is, is just get people ignited to be able to go out there and vote for McAuliffe. Now, if I was to put my hand really on the, the problem with this whole education thing and the left right now um, concerned that soccer moms are going to disrupt their plans, this shouldn't even be an issue with us, especially us Christians. The Bible tells us to raise our, raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And one of the things that that means is called paideia, raising our kids in the paideia, the full orb view of God's word and God's rule. And we've given up that responsibility to government education a long time ago. And while I'm excited to see people engage with their schools now, their schools have been teaching our kids things that have been blasphemous for a very long time. And some of that stuff is evolution. Evolution is at the very core of critical race theory. Critical race theory is not the, the root. Critical race theory is a fruit from the tree of evolution. And if we want, we are trying right now to get critical race theory and those things out of the school. And the problem is, is that it's not that we need to get critical race theory out of the school. We need to get our kids out of government schools because the root is far more corrupt than the fruit. Mm. So, Dave, I know you and your wife homeschool your kids. And, well, and we have our kids I, in we have our kids in a, a school here that is in a line in ideology with our worldview as a Christian school. Oh, my, my bad. I, I, yeah, I, I thought you were. Home. But I hear a lot of like Delano's homeschooling schooling yep. his kids. And I know a lot of I know a lot of I hear from a lot of white parents who are homeschooling their kids. And, yep. and I guess it's one of the things what I've been trying to say, use this show to explain like there are benefits, major benefits to marriage, particularly if you have kids. And it's a lot easier to manage. And if you want the option of homeschooling your kids, if you're in a marriage. And so that's what I get so upset. Like Juan Williams has been married, I believe since 1978. Mm. And I never hear, Delano talks about this all the time, but I never hear uh, Juan Williams writing columns like saying, to, reaching out to black people and saying, hey, look, we're not involved in marriages the way we used to be when we were excelling and moving ahead as a race. Why aren't guys like Juan Williams, who has executed a long-term marriage, why isn't he preaching that as a solution and a benefit to black people, as opposed to preaching uh, more government control is the solution for black people. Because this is really simple. Um, Juan Williams has gone insane. Um, this is, and I'm not being fallacious about that. I'm, I'm, I'm being very serious. Romans one talks about this. When you choose not to honor God for God and you give up who God is, there is a way that God gives you up to this insanity and you start going insane. 
And you start, and as long as you're going to support things like homosexual marriage, if you're going to support transgenderism, all that stuff is giving up the natural relationship of the individual, the creature, to the creator, saying that you can make up whatever you want and be whoever you want, right? That leads you down the trajectory of insanity. Now, let me bring this back. When you do that, everything goes off kilter. Everything does. And and so Juan doesn't have any idea, any structure, understanding of what a family even is. A family is designed to reflect the glory of God here on earth. Well, what does that look like? Husbands loving their wives, wives loving their kids, children obeying their parents. It's interesting to me that even though Juan doesn't get it, this last year in 2020, a large majority of black families have started to get it. Homeschooling has went up hundreds of percentage of black families deciding to take their kids out of government schools because they are seeing how poor the education is, first of all, that they're getting. And they're saying, we might as well go ahead and do this ourselves and get our kids to a better place than trusting the government. Man, every time, if if what Juan believes is true about institutions failing black people, he would see clearly that it's not good for black people to put their kids in government institutions that are supposed racist, Right. And so he doesn't see that because he's gone insane. How you think about God and his world and who God is and when you remove God from who he is and remove the creature from who they are, your logical arguments pretend to go insane. And his article is absolute proof of that. And so I'm encouraged to see that black families are taking control of their education and seeing this. And it wasn't if it wasn't for the pandemic, I don't think that we'd be doing this. The black people have been their best when they have taken responsibility for all the things that they have in front of them. And and so I, I don't think this is the concept that I think about all the time when it comes to education. Um, it is not easy, especially if you're a single mom out there. But it's not easy even for a family. We still have to work at this. Delano, he's homeschooling. He's working just as hard as I am and when my kids as well. But it's it's the the, the argument is this. Homeschooling is like being in the desert with Jesus rather than being in Egypt with Pharaoh. And a lot of people, when they, when those Egyptians, when those Christians were inside of the wilderness, they really did want to go back to Egypt. And why? Because it was easier. Everything's laid out for you. We don't really have to do nothing. They had been freed. They had been freed. God freed them and took them into the wilderness. And it was hard in the wilderness. And the reason it was hard in the wilderness is because you had to get that slavery off of you. Sand softens so that it could be smooth. And what homeschooling does and taking control of your children's education does is it removes the toughness that you get from slavery. It makes you ready for the promised land. And so what we need to do, especially as black people, is to get off of Pharaoh's paycheck, right, payroll, Get out from Egypt. Don't be longing for how easy and how simple it is where we just had all the fruits and all the things given to us by Pharaoh and go ahead and jump into this desert with Jesus because I'd rather be in the desert with Jesus than without Jesus and have Pharaoh as a master. Dave, that's really good. You've given me a lot to think about. Uh, That's why I wanted to add you uh, to the show. Uh, we'll be returning back to you uh, very soon. Thank you, and great job. Hey, man, I appreciate you, man. All right, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. 
hit that subscribe, hit that like, hit the notifications. I believe we got 4,000 likes on the last video or somewhere close. Uh, we, we did a great job uh, with yesterday's. We wanna do another great job today and get four or 5,000 likes. Hop in the comments, hop in the live chat. Wanna hear your thoughts. Delano. Welcome back. Time for uh, Delano Squires uh, to join the show. Uh, Delano joining us from Washington, D.C. You know how Delano gets down. Uh, Delano's written a terrific column that we'll get to in a moment. He's, it's about the gentrification of the black mind. But I want to first start by, because Delano lives in D.C., not far from the state of Virginia, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the gubernatorial race in, in Virginia and Terry McAuliffe and uh, Glenn Youngkin and Juan Williams saying that mm. uh, parental rights are white racial politics or a reflection of white supremacy. Uh, I, I, Delano, as a dad and as someone who you and your wife are homeschooling uh, your children, are parental rights, is that just white racial politics? Is that, are your rights actually white people's rights actually, or the white people's politics? Only, only to someone, again, whose, whose mind has been gentrified, right? When, when white folks live in your head rent free, then anything that happens in this country, you can you know, find a way to tie it back to white racial politics, white grievance, white privilege, white supremacy. Um, it, it's, and, and Jason, I think when, when you really look at it, what's going to end up happening is that parents' rights is going to end up being used in the same way by the left that states' rights were used. Um, and they are going to, and, and part of this probably depends on how this, this election turns out, they are going to double down on using that term um, as a euphemism for white racial grievance politics. Um, I couldn't think of anything that's further from the truth, and not not only sort of on a fundamental level in terms of parents having the uh, the God-given authority to educate, train, and raise their children, but also on a practical level, like there are millions of black parents who have no interest in the types of things that you know their children are being taught in school, particularly as it relates to race obsession. So anything that teaches their children that they are victims of of, of you know, white supremacist systems who need to be liberated by these teachers. Or, and I think this is really where a lot of black parents may be uh, activated, the things that revolve around you know, gender identity obsession. So even a parent who says, you know what, sure, anti-racism sounds like a good thing. They're gonna be a lot less um, interested in the type of curriculum that teaches gender identity, transgenderism, and uh, radical sexual orientation, you know, ideology to three, four, and five-year-olds. So I think part of the reason the, the left is framing it as a racial issue is to hide the fact that uh, a lot of parents um, are also opposed to the early sexualization of, of our children. And, and that is exactly what ended up happening with BLM. 
BLM, for anyone who's paying attention, was an LGBT org that was masquerading as a racial justice organization. And it really was, um, in every sense of the word, a Trojan horse. And I think a lot of uh, people, particularly black folk and, and black parents, are starting to realize that. And so this goes back to a theme that I keep getting at. The left is using race constantly Mm -hmm. to mask their real agenda. And I'm just, you say we figured it out with Black Lives Matter. Some would argue like we figured it out too late. And is it always going to be the case that we figure it out too late or are we ever going to reach the point where it's like, oh no, I've seen this before instantly. They keep using this tactic over and over and over and over again. When, when do we get to that point? I think we get there at the point where black identity ceases to be tied to notions of um, oppression, so, you know, systemic injustice and discrimination. Um, I'm not saying we deny our country's past. I'm saying at some point we have to acknowledge our country's present and plan for our country's future. So as long as the, the people, particularly on, on the black left, who really are the ones who move the conversation as it relates to the black community and um, guide and sort of lead people in terms of how to look at these issues, as long as they sort of root black identity in subjugation and oppression, um, that tactic that you just talked about is always going to be useful. So whatever new thing comes down the line, you know, whether it's again on sexual orientation, whether it's on gender identity, a lot of people predict that the next big wave is going to be around, um, you know, pedophilia and, and issues like that. As long as they wrap it with a black face, they know that they have uh, some sense of sort of built-in immunity to criticism because people who would criticize that, right? Let's, let's say you get the New York Times running an, a profile, another profile, because they did one in 2017 on pedophilia. Let's say they do another profile. They'll say, you know what? Let's get a black guy. Let's make him the face of it so that people who push back against that, we can accuse of being racist. And as long as, as I said, our identity is rooted in oppression, then that tactic will will be able to work for a lot of people. Um, and it will keep us thinking that America in 2021 is no different than America in 1921. And, and, and that's why the left does it. And I've, and I've said before, part of the reason that some of these tactics don't work on the Hispanic community, you know, so uh, for instance, is there is no Jaime Crow for them, for the left to speak of. There is no, um, you know, uh, Hispanic Selma for them to draw on. So that those tactics in terms of constantly pulling a people in the present back into the past to make them think that the their future is going to be no different than what they came from, those things don't work on other communities in the same way that they work on us. You know what, that's the second time you've made that point and it's the first time I fully grasped it. Hmm. And And when I start thinking about other ethnic groups like Italians. It's like they got a whole history over in Italy that they relate to that had nothing to do with their experience here in America. And 
when Italians got here, they faced some discrimination, but quickly assimilated and, and moved on. And so, again, and, and the media didn't build these careers, book, mm. make books, movies, all about their oppression and blah, blah, blah. And so they're free to assimilate and move on, take care of themselves and, and move up the, the ladder, whereas this whole industry has been built around our oppression mm -hmm. and there's money to be made by keep shoving it in people's face and keep making them think that 2021 is the same as 1921. It, it, it's, it's fascinating the point. And again, I guess Chinese people faced a lot of discrimination uh, here in America and had to take a lot of terrible jobs and high risk jobs. I mean, they were the ones blowing up mountains and getting mm. blown up in the process and building the highways and dams and canals and all this other stuff. Uh, I, I want to, cause I, I think you, we have an identity built around oppression. And then in your column today, part of our, I don't know if I'm expressing it right, but I think part of our identity is built around thinking white people are the solution to black mm -hmm. problems. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think your column today, the gentrification of the black mind. We, through Juan Williams, through Colin Kaepernick, through Brittany Cooper, through Black Lives Matter, we're, we're basically taught, go to bed at night and pray and focus on improving white people and mm -hmm. wait till you see what happens to you. And it's almost like the minister that tells you, man, just keep the faith, uh, praise Jesus, and, and you're gonna and follow Jesus's path and prescriptions for you. And it's like, for black people, praise and think about and pray about white people and follow white liberal prescriptions for your problems, mm -hmm. and you too shall be saved. I wanted to make two quick points. To, to the last thing you said, I think the big difference, right, is that a minister who is preaching the good news of Jesus Christ is pointing his people to a God, um, hopefully that those people love, and certainly a God that loves them. The black folks that we're talking about, the, the Brittany Coopers, um, the Colin Kaepernicks, in, in their words, what they say is, you know, we have to, we have to, um, we, we need liberation and it has to come from the people who are oppressing us. So what you end up getting is people who hate the person that they're asking to help them. And that's why these people sound so confused. They spend all of their days talking about what white people think, what white people do, what white people believe, what white people say, what white people value. And then they turn around and say, and these are the same people who are keeping us down, but we need them to, to lift us up. And, that, and that's, that's why their message just sounds so confusing. And that's probably why they are, they are racked with so, so many identity issues, why they seem so um, uh, anxious and fearful and neurotic all the time. Because the deity that they've made is both God and devil at the same time. And, and they don't know how to deal with that. So as you were talking about Colin Kaepernick, what we're seeing is um, a young man's identity issues being played out on, on the small screen. And that's, that's why Colin Kaepernick 
I was talking to my wife yesterday. I said Kaepernick reminds me of like, uh, you know, like the the white patriot dudes who dress up on the weekends and do Revolutionary War reenactments. I know black folk from all across the, the, the spectrum, all across the country, from the South, the Midwest, Northeast, African immigrants, Car- Caribbean immigrants, um, uh, day laborers, construction workers, college educated, doctoral candidates, all different types of folks, different religions, black Muslim, Hebrew, Israelite, all that stuff. I don't know anybody who dresses like Colin Kaepernick, but he feels like he has to take on a role, right? So, so to him, blackness is I gotta dress like Shaft, I gotta wear a big <laughs> afro, and obviously I'm not I'm not speaking against those things, right? I'm I'm down for the leather jacket. I used to wear my hair big. I had an afro, cornrows, twists, all that different stuff. But he's playing a role, and and we are being subjected to to the long-standing identity issues that he has never been able to work out. So when he talks about blackness, it's it's a caricature. And typically, something like this would work on a show, I don't know if you remember the show, Jason, but The Boondocks, the cartoon, they used to be on Cartoon Network, and you yeah. know, they had different characters. So, so what Colin Kaepernick is doing would work on The Boondocks, because everybody would know that he's caricature, caricaturing different people in the black community. But we're actually being sold this as if it's real life. So that's how he ends up casting himself, a multi-million dollar athlete, right, two-sport athlete, as someone who is oppressed. And when I talk about the gentrification of the black mind, part of what it, it has done, it has, it has decreased the, the value and values in the black community, and it has brought a certain amount of decay to the community in general. And you see that in the, in the black public intellectuals and activist class. These people can't even string together a coherent thought. Because the same drills that the NFL guys have to go through in a league that's 70 plus percent black, the hockey, the hockey players have to go through in a league that's 90 some odd percent white. But for Kaepernick and Brittany Cooper, when everything is about race, that's the only thing that, that you can see. And, and again, we're starting to see the effects of that. Urban gentrification, as contentious as it may be, is typically about building. People may get upset because they say, all right, the neighborhood is changing, black folk about to get pushed out, but the people who own property there will also say, mm, my house might go up in value because now here comes the coffee shops, here come the restaurants, here come the dog parks, here come the bike lanes. As contentious as, as an issue as it may be, it's about building up. Psychological gentrification, on the other hand, is about tearing down. That's why all the, the terms they use, destroy, dismantle, deconstruct, tear down, are about destruction. And we're starting to see that because the, the, the black leadership class, through their actions and their words, are destroying the black community. When we get to the point when the NAACP backs abortion laws and frames opposition to abortion as white supremacy, you know that 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 we as a people are in trouble, and and I want to say put in one one more thing really quick. Um, I, I wanted to point to an alternative to what we get here because what we're seeing here, Jason, you know this was not always the case. There was a time with black folk, we talked personal responsibility was something we talked about. We talked about violence in our own communities. You know, I referenced the 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 different rap songs, East Coast and West Coast, 
self-destruction and we're all in the same gang. So you had rappers who said, we can't keep doing this to each other, right? We stood up against the Klan. How am I going to turn around and, and co-sign one black man killing another black man? But I talked about Black and Married with Kids, which is, that was the first site that I started writing for, you know, over 10 years ago, and how the couple that started it, started it to give a more positive image of black families and, and marriage. They started the site, they moved into documentaries about manhood, masculinity, generational wealth. They moved into marriage cruises for black couples who want to work on their relationship, on communication, blended families, starting businesses together. They flipped that into um, a business where they help black entrepreneurs, again, build wealth, build businesses, sustain wealth in their, in their own family. And, and again, what you see is that couple using a model that we have always had in the black community, where we focus on self-reliance and, and being self-sustaining. And from there, when, when you're stable as a community, then you can interact with other people on equal footing, right? As, as, as men interacting with other men, not men interacting um, and placing yourself in the position of a child who needs to be rescued, who needs to be affirmed, provided for, and protected for your entire life. So uh, I, I want to draw that distinction because I, oftentimes what happens is that we act as if what we see today always has been, and the, the leadership class of, of black America, the talented 10th, if you will, um, this is not how they always were. And, and what we're seeing now is, a, is a, a real degradation of black leadership. And I think it's time we call attention to that. You mentioned degradation of black leadership. You mentioned moral decay. You're basically saying an intellectual decay. I, I, I wanna, I, having been in the media business for 30 some odd years, I, I've seen what I believe are examples of and a movement toward, uh, you know what? We actually prefer, I'm talking about corporate media, prefers mm. intellectually damaged, limited mm. people to be the leaders of the conversation when it comes to platforming black people. And mm. so it, it's, it's not, they will look past Delano Squires and be like, hey, uh, <laughs> you know, where, where's the guy with 10 kids and 10 baby mamas to give a show to? Mm. Uh, rather than let's give it to Delano in a great marriage, three kids, highly educated, and, and can really represent himself at the highest level. And I, I see it as an intentional thing of, of it, and I'm wondering if that's your argument in your piece, because I, I found when you start talking about moral decay, decay and all that, do you think this is like a plan to platform Colin Kaepernick, Heavy C, Brittany Cooper, I call her Heavy C, uh, <laughs> uh, Juan Williams or whatever, is this like intentional that people that are limited are being given massive platforms, particularly when it comes to black people? I absolutely do. Um, I don't think there's any, there's any sort of, um, I, don't, I don't think that this is happening by accident, basically. I, I think this is intentional. Um, 
so whether it's Colin Kaepernick and, you know, Brittany Cooper, the Jamel Hills of the world, you know, p- people who operate in that lane, it seems like advocacy, corporate media, they, they look for a particular type. And part of it is they want people who confirm their worldview. And that's why they glom on to every ism and every phobia. So they, they need people who they feel will fight against racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia. And I think that's part of the reason why you see them oftentimes prefer um, black women, particularly women who identify as feminists um, and black gay men to straight heterosexual black men who articulate and embody a different worldview, a more traditional, conservative, Christian, however you want to frame it, a a more traditional worldview. Um, And I think in in that respect, they're doing two things. As I said, they're getting um, spokespeople who speak their language and speak to their audience for whom every issue is about race, right? And again, these people really lack a certain intellectual firepower, and I'm not saying that to be to be condescending. I'm saying it because it's true. They will look at a at a 96% Hispanic county in Texas on the border that goes for Trump in the last election, and the only thing they'll say is, "Oh, those are just Hispanic people trying to be white," right? So they don't they don't ask themselves, "Okay, is there a reason why people who live on a border town may not be in favor of increased levels of illegal immigration?" Hmm, maybe so. Um, those things never strike them. But the other thing that they do, and particularly with someone like Brittany Cooper, who has been publicly hostile towards black men, and, and including black men who, as I said, articulate a more conservative worldview, um, they use that in an effort to, to bring further division between black men and black women. And as long as those two groups stay divided, and I say that particularly for the reason that most black people are going to end up, if they marry, going to end up marrying other black people. Regardless of what the media says, most black men do not, you know, marry outside the race, quote unquote. Um, So they know if they can bring division there, that division opens up all types of different opportunities. Planned Parenthood eats off that division because married women, generally speaking, do not abort their babies. So Planned Parenthood loves to see a nuclear family in disarray because they know when people, even if they don't marry, they're going to keep having sex. And the, and the products of that, of that sex, they, they need access to that. It shows up in education. Children tend to do better in households with you know, two married biological parents in a low-conflict marriage, low-conflict relationship. Um, so in a number of different areas criminal justice, education, as I said, the, the, the stuff around abortion, the left needs that division to stay there. And they see um, black men who are starting to speak up, regardless of what their politics are, in the ways that we're doing as a, as a threat. And that's why they're constantly recruiting. They, they need the, the Brittany Coopers, they need other people like that who sow that division. And, and, I'm, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, being critical of, of black women, I think part of the problem is, and some of this is on, is on black men, some of this is on outside forces, and a lot of it is, again, on the leadership class because they don't have the insight to really sort these issues out. Black women have been playing the wrong role for too long. Women, generally speaking, tend to be more inclusive. They care more about relationships. They want people to feel um, at ease and, and, again, and a sense of belonging. 
That works great when you're talking about turning a house into a home. That works great when you're talking about building a, a sense of you know, collegiality and, and community within a family or a neighborhood. But a person whose natural inclination is to let in everything is the wrong person to have on the city gate. A watchman cannot be that inclusive because they'll end up ushering in the, the Trojan horses, they'll end up ushering in the undercover agents, they'll end up ushering in the very things that will end up undermining that very community. And for too long, black women have been watchmen in our community. And as I said, part of that is on black men. But part of that is on external forces who understand that and have said, yes, let's, let's prop them up. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't even matter whether what they say makes any sense. Let's prop up college-educated professors who get on a panel on MSNBC and laugh at the notion that black fathers matter in their families. And let's throw in somebody like Michael Eric Dyson to, to add a masculine perspective to that conversation. Because they know that by doing that, they are undermining the very thing that we need to survive as a community. So I do think it's intentional. Um, the question is how long it will last and whether sort of the black masses get hip to these games. Because Jason, what we need now, you talk about a fearless army. We, we need a fearless manifesto to combat the communist manifesto. And we need the art of culture war to, to combat some of the tactics, tactics that the left um, are using right now. Delano, you just took us to church. Uh, I'm going to uh, let the choir come in with a hymn as we move on to Steve Kim. Uh, but uh, you just spoke in tongues, brother. Thank you so much. Great job. Thank you, Jason. Uh, join the Fearless Army, uh, youtube.com slash Jason Whitlock. We will be working on a fearless manifesto. Uh, thanks to Reverend Dr. Uh, Delano. All right, uh, Steve Kim, the Korean Cosell. <laughs> they done set the Korean Cosell to hip hop music. Uh, man, people love uh, Steve Kim, and that's because Steve does a great job. He's the, he's the most clever man on the show. Uh, Steve. Uh, we've been having some very serious discussions. We need to lighten it up and talk a little sports. So uh, why don't we start with you eating crow? Uh, you came on this show all last week. Jim Harbaugh is the greatest thing since Bo Schembechler and Woody Hayes wrapped in the same package. And I, I was like, man, pump the brakes. Let's beat Michigan State first. Uh, what's your take on Jim, Jim Harbaugh today? Oh, Jay, I'm a little sick. With all the crow that I ate, I needed this. Pepto-Bismol. Oh, my God. I mean, Jay, it was looking so good. 30 to 14. And I'm thinking, okay, they score one more time, make it a three-possession game. It's a wrap. And this team's looking like a playoff contender. But then you got to give Mel Tucker credit. Their team didn't quit. And that's a staple of Michigan State football. 
Kenneth Walker should be in the Heisman discussion. But this is where I have to give Harbaugh a lot of the heat. In a tie game, this is not the time to be rotating in quarterbacks. Cade McNamara was playing the game of his life. He had stepped up to the table, okay? Then he brings in that freshman, J.J. McCarthy, and I know they're trying to appease a lot of freshmen in the, in the era of the transfer portal, try to, kids, uh, try to keep kids happy. Jason, there's a time and a point for all of that, not in a rivalry game that's very close. And what made it worse about the J.J. McCarthy fumble was the previous drive heading into the goal line, McCarthy had fumbled. At that point, I'm thinking, you know what, kids, sit here right with me and be a good teammate. We're going to get you in next week against Indiana. He blew the game, bottom line. And if you look at the numbers against top 15 teams on the road, his record against Mel Tucker in Michigan State and Ohio State, his record overall against AP top 25 teams, I was willing to give Captain Pleats a pass given the fact, hey, he's winning the games he's supposed to, something that Brady Hoke and Rich Rod didn't do. Now he has to take the next step. Jason, he's in year five or six. He deserves all the heat. I will eat crow, and it went down worse than his milk with the steak that he has all the time. That's another thing that disgusts me about him. Bad loss for Jim Harbaugh. Uh, I believe he's in year seven, Steve, but you know Ugh. who's counting? Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Even worse. Right, let me move. Let me move to a topic you're maybe on more stable footing. I read your column this morning on Baker Mayfield. And it was pretty interesting. You basically consider Baker the next Jared Goff, a guy that the Rams got too high on, overpaid, and then had to cut bait with. Uh, go ahead and elaborate on your take on Baker Mayfield. Look, if Baker Mayfield was, let's say, the 20th pick in the draft or maybe a second or third rounder, you'd be like, you know, he's fine. He's pretty good. He was the number one pick in the draft. And when you Pick a quarterback within the top three or four. Your expectation is you're getting a franchise elite quarterback that's going to lead you for the next dozen years, and he has the ability to make people better. Here's the interesting thing about what's going on in Cleveland, and I just sent you a text where Odell Beckham's father is throwing Baker under the bus in defense of his son. He has playmakers. Jarvis Landry is a really good, productive player for the most part. Odell Beckham has been a superstar earlier in his career. He's got a one-two punch at running back that he leans on. But the leading receiver with all those weapons, I didn't realize this, is David Njoku, the tight end out of Miami. He doesn't even have 400 yards receiving. And, and I get it. I get it. Baker's been injured. He's playing with a bad left shoulder. But his stats don't even tell the whole story. Because even his completions are not put into a place where the guys can get upfield and get the yak. And my view is this. If you are the Cleveland Browns and you pick any quarterback number one, it has to be a difference maker, a quarterback. And let's go back to that draft, Jason, in 2018. Josh Rosen's been a bust, but Josh Allen is elite. Lamar Jackson has won an MVP. Sam Darnold, I think, still has a chance to resurrect his career in the right situation. So if you redrafted that 2018 class, there's no doubt in my mind Baker Mayfield would be the third quarterback at best. And before you sign this guy to a mega extension, which changes the whole salary cap complexion of your team, you better think long and hard about doing that because I don't know. Think about this. Is there that much of a difference between Baker Mayfield and Case Keenum? 
Case, and I used to be kind of high on Case Keenum, but I think that's kind of rough on Baker. I, 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 I think that's kind of rough. I, I like the Jared Goff comparison. And then, right. I mean, and now it, the Jared Goff comparison is even worse because Goff can't win a game in Detroit. Uh, but I, I think you're on solid ground questioning whether or not you give Baker a big extension. But, well, but no, there's but Jason, plenty of time the other, left if, in this season. There is, but here's the variable. If you're going to pay Baker Mayfield 30 to $35 million, Case Keenum comes at at least half the price. So now you're talking about restocking the other part of the roster because remember those second year those second deals for the quarterback changes the complexion of what you could add on around him. Look at the Seattle Seahawks once they had to really play Russell Wilson after the first four years. It makes a difference. Uh, Cam Newton should he be a candidate mm. in New Orleans or Carolina? Will he be a candidate? I think there's an argument to be made, but the fact that Ron Rivera, Riverboat Ron in Washington, who had a pretty good run with him, the guy he took him to a Super Bowl is not even thinking about it with the very, very putrid Washington offense, I, I think is, an, is alarming. And I don't get the sense Sean Payton is going to make that call. I don't know who's going to make that call. Um, and as it relates, you said Carolina, right? Well, look, I kind of want to see Sam Darnold with Christian McCaffrey back. I thought he got off to a good start. You lose the best player on your team. That's obviously going to affect people. Um, as it relates to New Orleans, I'm very interested to see once Taysom Hill gets off the concussion protocol, I want to see him as the every down quarterback. Let's see what he can do. And let's see if he's really worth the type of money they paid him for, in essence, being a version of slash. But I get the sense that with Cam Newton, and you've talked about this ad nauseum before he does not have that personality of a backup and the other question is cam is saying a lot of the right things but i don't really know at any point in his life is he ready to be that type of guy to hold a clipboard and essentially be a caddy for a starting quarterback i have my doubts yeah i i think cam still needs to cut his hair and fully humble himself (laughs) and I don't think that's happened, and I, I don't see him as a good solution in New Orleans anywhere. Why do you think, and this is probably a better question for me, but I'm going to ask you, why do you think people aren't playing the race card as it comes to Cam? Whew, that's an interesting question, probably because he hasn't been woke. I mean, he never fully got aboard the whole Kaepernick thing. He, I don't remember him kneeling. Uh, I don't remember him doing a lot of things of the SJW nature. He, he Look, when Jerry Richardson was the owner of that team. I thought he fell in line, and he had a very productive run. I think Cam's a little bit underrated in a sense that the stats don't always tell the full story because of his ability to move the chains with his legs. But outside of dressing very unusually and being the mad hatter of the NFL, I don't think he's ever put himself out there as a guy that was was a guy that was really concerned about social issues. He was always kind of immersed in himself more than his people. So I, I don't think people have ever thought of him as like, let's say they would a Colin Kaepernick or a Malcolm Jenkins who have been out in front and center in terms of those issues. Good segue to ask you about uh, the Kaepernick show. Uh, on Netflix, <laughs> I've retitled it Daddy Issues. Uh, it's called Colin in Black and White. Uh, but I, I think it's mostly about Kaepernick's daddy issues. Uh, someone needs to introduce this man to his daddy or give him a stripper pole to work out his problems. 
you know, when you asked me to watch it on Sunday, first of all, I, I don't have Netflix. I just can't get – I'm not, I'm not a big fan of their programming overall. But it also it, – but by the way, it reminded me of this long-ago sitcom that lasted literally a month on the fabled UPN called The Secret Diaries of Desmond Pfeiffer, which was a sitcom, believe it or not, based on the Civil War era of Abraham Lincoln, and it kind of made light of slavery, and this show was panned. And the ironic thing was that show was trying to be funny – and was not funny at all. Kaepernick was trying to be serious, and I thought unintentionally made a great parody. And I'm sure people have pointed this out, but it really puts into question his sincerity about wanting to play football. That if you are going to say that, hey, I'm ready to play at any time the NFL starts backing down, well, then it, it doesn't align with what he was saying about the slave mentality that exists in the National Football League. Uh, I mean, think about this, Jay. If, if you want to make a sitcom about slavery, like the, our version of The Secret Diaries of Desmond Pfeiffer, could you imagine us two being slaves and saying, wow, you know what, that we're freed? Let's say we're freed. Could you imagine any of us saying, you know, outside the long hours and the lashings and the way they treat our women and not, not a lot of benefits, <laughs> you know, plantation life wasn't that bad. I mean, they fed us. It was okay. So that's basically what he's saying. So I, I don't know why, and, and I think it's a rhetorical question, Jay, why are none of the NFL reporters that have been front and center about the more than an athlete uh, agenda, you're telling me nobody in the last few days has asked any of these players, what do you think about Colin Kaepernick's recent work and his comments about the National Football League? Because I'm dying to know if any of the current players actually agrees with them or has enough guts to say he couldn't be more off base because in a lot of ways what he said is actually trivializing what took place with the slaves and his ancestors it's you make a great point and no those questions won't be asked <laughs> uh because that's not what we do we don't ask difficult questions in the media we we ask easy questions <laughs> all right korean Cosell, i gotta let you go have a good Gotta day. get to Uncle Jimmy and our approval rating. Great job. All right, go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscription. Hit the notifications. Get those likes up. I'm watching right now. We need more likes. Uncle Jimmy. All right, welcome back. Time to wrap up the show and head out to Uncle Jimmy's crib. Uh, Uncle Jimmy will help us with our approval rating. He's been watching the show. He may also have a review of uh, my work or perhaps Dave Shannon, uh, Delano, or the Korean Cosell. Uncle Jimmy, uh, welcome. <laughs> you went from suited an afro yesterday to do rag and sweatshirt today first of all this is not a sweatshirt you, this is a hoodie and you need to respect it and realize what it represents uh oh okay. i can't are see not, what does are, it represent are we not trying oh. to bring up a fearless army <laughs> are we not trying to bring up a fearless army simper fee i'm sorry Semper Fi? The word is, I don't know. The word anyway. is Fi, man. You need to be ashamed of your damn self. The word is Semper <laughs> Fi, man, which means always faithful. Come on, man.
You, you, you uh, what's the do rag? What's the do rag represent? You ain't got enough hair for a do rag. Oh, that's not a do rag. It's a baseball cap. <laughs> Who are you, Tom Brady? Man, Tom Brady got it. You did know, you, you know, that, Colin Cowherd can't. All right, no. Oh. What did it, it say? Said, make big sexy great again. It said, make big sexy. Uh, great again. Oh man. <laughs> All right. Was man. I not great today? Was I not great today? Hey, man, you know what? You had a great show today, and I, I, I'm i not – trust me, I, I, the last thing I want to do is stroke anything on you, so I don't want to stroke your ego, man, but <laughs> you, you had a hell of a show today, man. Even though I will say that you showed your age, you did show your age. Just talking about when we went to school, because we only went to school to learn the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. You know? <laughs> Now, hey man, that I is never, true. hey man, I never did get on the whatever that was, the the, the council, the 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 parent teacher count, the the council for that. But you know, right yeah. now, yeah. Uh, in Kansas City with my two sons, I did join the PTA just to be involved with my kids' education. And I realized at that point, and I I, I was very involved because I realized that the PTA stood for parents looking at teachers' asses. And uh, I became very involved. <laughs> Can we get to the approval, Rady, uh, before you? Uh, Juan Williams, the political pundit, has basically said parental rights are white parents' rights, not for anybody else. Uh, he's a shill for the Democratic Party. He does it well as a job performance. I got him at a 24. You know what he is? And I'm surprised you didn't call him this, man. He is an agent of chaos. And right mm. now he's doing his job to the letter, man. Get that dude to 25, man. Don't cheat him. Mm. Agent of chaos. I like that. In terms of character, I think he has none. I think he's a fraudulent pers person that doesn't believe anything. He's just on the payroll of the left. Uh, I give him a two in character. Hey man, I'm gonna ask you a question. I want you to be completely honest. Have you met, have you ever met anyone named Juan that you could ever like or trust? <laughs> Juan they Epstein from Welcome Back Carter. Yeah. They, they all look the same, first of all. And you can't trust none of them. <laughs> so that character, he's living up to it. Because you damn sure can't trust that one right now. <laughs> Give him a 23. Authent Come on. Uh, yeah. Authenticity. Uh, I have met a very low. I have him at a four. I don't think he's authentic at all. I, I think I didn't go into it in my monologue, but I did research on his friend. <laughs> his wife, I believe is like 2% black or something, but you know, she's in her 60s and got this purple and blonde hair and all the, I don't, I, 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 anyway, I don't find him authentic. Uh, his whole old passing himself off as Juan from the hood uh, is bogus to me. So I gave him a four in authenticity. You gave him a four? Hey man, yeah. Juan Williams is the Colin Kaepernick of the Democratical Party. <laughs> Meaning I give him a zero for authenticity.
That's probably accurate. And uh, it factor, uh, you know, I, I don't see much happening there. So I gave him a three in it factor uh, for an overall total of 33. But it, I'm sorry, what's your it factor? My it factor is whether you and I told you this yesterday, whether you like it or not, this is why they refer to us as black and they refer to them as African-Americans because we are not in the plans for the future, okay? They're the ones who got it, so give him a 23. They got it. We don't, okay? Mm. I got him as a 33 in a dumpster fire. You got him at a grease fire, 71. Yeah. All right, that's it, and that's all for us. Uh, dress up tomorrow, Jim. You look like... You just, you, you look straight hey, out man, of Compton really today or something. To pitch, I was really trying to pitch a note for that fearless army, man. Because this this topic we had today, really, man, we didn't have enough time to talk about this. But we really need some men to step up and be some men, okay? We really need to step up and start being, and start taking control of what's happening, man. So th th this is the reason I put this on today, man. For those people out there that's watching the show, those people that's listening to the show on YouTube, hey, man, the fearless army, man, that's what it's about. Oh, you're going to lose now your it's freedom. about tomorrow. It's I right. agree. Great stuff, Jim. That's tomorrow. We're out of here. We'll see you tomorrow. I just wanna be, I just wanna